continuing in our study in the book of James. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing I enjoy more than at the end of a long day. Just the day is done, and you get into bed, and the covers feel so good. They're cool, and they feel good, and you lay back on the pillow, and then spend all the time it takes me to fall asleep thinking about the stupid things I said that day and of all time and all the dumb things you've ever said. Have, has anybody ever had that where every embarrassing moment, that's the best time for it to rush back and it just replays over and over in your mind? That's, there's nothing more relaxing than that, just having those moments. Um, I, but I think of all the things we regret most as people, I think the things that most often go through our minds are the things that we've said. Things that we've said that embarrassed ourselves or things that we said that we regretted that we wish we could take back. And uh, we say a lot of things. I read a study. I was curious about it. And I read a study. And it's hard to say exactly how many. But they say on average, the average person says between 7,000 and 15,000 words a day. And uh, it also found that the stereotype that women speak more words than men is not necessarily true. Um, and I just heard of that's right. Um, as a matter of fact, in the study they did with several hundred people, the person that spoke the most words in their study was actually a man who spoke uh, over 20,000 words on average. And the person that spoke the fewest words on average was also a man. Uh, it was only like 300 words. I don't know if he was like, good morning and good night, and that was the end of his day. I don't know. But uh, very few words. But we speak a lot of words. But those 7,000-ish words that we speak each day are really your imprint you leave on the world. They go out of our mouth, and they can't be unspoken. They, they go out and they can't be undone. They leave a stamp on everyone who hears it. It's like a tiny hard drive that we all carry, and we kind of get that, that imprint left on us. We, don't, we might not be able to reiterate you know, verbatim what someone said to us, but the shadows are left on us of what we hear in conversations from other people. And so we've been walking through this book of James, and James, as we've talked about, is a letter that was written to, written to followers of Jesus um, that had been scattered from persecution around the world. And a couple of weeks ago, we opened with chapter 1, and we talked about in chapter 1 uh, what it means to live through hardship, finding a way to count joy when we go through times of trouble and difficulty, and the difference that there is between testing and temptation. And then last Sunday, Pastor Ty brought uh, a challenging section of James's letter in chapter 2 to us, where we talked about, um, and he was, again, writing to established Christians, and as Christians, he wanted them to know that faith without works was dead and useless. Um, faith gives us salvation, yes, but living it out in action is what gives it life, right? And so today, we're going to be jumping into the heart. We're really getting into the heart of James's letter here. And James must have seen something in the believers he was writing to that really needed to be addressed because he actually talks about this topic both in chapter 1, which I didn't really touch on first week, but also now in chapter 3. And and he sees specifically something in their speech that needs to be talked about. It needed to be addressed. And so this is what he writes to. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me. James chapter 3. Um, again, on the Bible app, if you like, you can include, you can add your own notes and all kinds of things there. James chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1. James says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, we're not going to unpack this verse today, but James must have seen that uh, there was a, a being a teacher or a leader was a, a highly sought after position. People were clamoring to be teachers, and, and he was warning them. He says, this, yes, this comes with a lot of respect. It comes with a lot of recognition. 
but he warns them to be slow about pursuing this because there's a high level of accountability that comes with that. Though what you speak matters. It carries a lot of weight. And so he's warning them uh, to not just be so quick to, be, uh, to, to desire those things. And then he goes on. So let's continue here with verse 2. He says, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. So James makes some powerful assertions here about the tongue. The tongue, of course, is uh, a symbol for th the things we say, right? It's not just a hunk of flesh that flops around in our mouth, but rather it's, it's, it's not like we don't have jurisdiction over it. But it's the tissue, the part of our body that orates the thoughts and meditations that are inside of us. Our tongues orate what we think about, what we, what we, what we, our minds rest on, the things that we, uh, that we consider, the things we watch, all those things. So, so it's not just a hunk of flesh that, that James is referring to, but he's talking about, he's using this as a metaphor for um, what we speak. And so um, when I was a youth pastor, I preached on this passage and I really wanted to... Uh, Get the kids' attention. Get some shock and awe. So I went to the butcher and got a cow's tongue. And I got the cow's tongue, and I was like, show it to them, and they're going to be like, oh, that's horrifying. And, man, they're going to be really paying attention during this message. I failed to remember that most of the students I had were from the country, and they were raised on farms. And so a lot of them were like, oh, that's beef tongue. That is good eating. And they were excited about it. And so it didn't quite have the impact I was hoping for. But, uh, but, but the tongue is powerful. The tongue, the tongue carries a lot of weight behind it. And so James opens with these two allegories about the tongue. He compares it to a ship, and he compares it to a horse. So, so something that just boggles my brain, I, I, had, I saw, sat and thought about it while I was working on my message, is that up until just 100 years ago, the main principal way of transportation was still by horse. Throughout history, you think about how many thousands of years of history that have led up to now. And up until just a little over 100 years ago, people were still primarily getting around by means of horse. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, uh, study guides I use, it's, it's, a, it's a, a study guide that was written by a man that talked about in his childhood watching buggies going around. I was like, how old is this study guide? <laughs> but up until fairly recently in history, horses were pretty, pretty much the principal means of getting around. And, and horses have always intimidated me. I wasn't raised around horses. Um, their size, along with their power, you watch them on TV, you're like, that's cool. And then you get up to a horse, and it lowers its head down to you, and the, its head is just like, huge. And then they have those huge eyeballs that just stare into your soul. I'm intimidated. And it doesn't matter where I'm standing next to the horse, I'm sure I'm in a place that wants to kick me. That's just how, I'm like, watch out, it's going to kick you. It doesn't matter where I'm at. If it's a ninja, it's like side kicking or something. But I'm like, that horse will kick you. I, I, I just have this thing that horses intimidate me. They're so strong and they're so big. And a number of years ago, we went on a family vacation. Um, this is when I was still in high school. And we just, we, I think we were up in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. We decided to do a trail ride. And uh, I could tell the proprietors of the horse ranch could see I was concerned. And so they found me the, the most peaceful mare that you've ever seen. And this, this poor horse came down, and I was like, we get each other. It doesn't want to do this. I don't really want to do this. We're, we're on the same page. 
And so the directions they gave me were like, get on, you're going to hold the reins, don't do anything with them. Just, just let them hang there. Don't, don't, don't do anything. And I was like, I can do this. And, uh, and that horse knew the trail. It just took off. It, it, knew, it knew, I carry this poor tourist around for an hour, around this trail, I get the oat bag. That's what's going to happen. And so it knew what it was doing. I gave it no direction. I just held on very loosely as I was told. But, uh, but uh, James says that the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth. And as opposed to what I was doing, just holding on there, a bit has tremendous power. You see, a bit is this metal bar that is attached to a bridle. A bridle is what goes around the horse's head, and it's attached to the bridle, and the reins attach then to the bit. And the spit, as it passes through the horse's mouth with the reins attached, make it possible for the rider then to manipulate the direction the horse is going by giving it a, a signal in its mouth by where, which way the reins move. And, and, and this, horse's, the, this bit in the horse's mouth is actually quite small in comparison to the mass that this horse accounts for. There's horses that are absolutely enormous. I was reading there are some horses, horse breeds in England, that can weigh over 2,200 pounds. Massive animals. That's, 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 a, that's literally 10 times the size of me. And, and so if you were on the back of one of these unbroken animals, and you didn't have a bit in its mouth, and it was just a wild horse, you would be at the mercy of where it wanted to go. You'd say, I want to go that way. It'd go, that's a nice story. I don't care. I'm going over here. Yet... These massive animals, these animals of such strength, so much greater than ours, can be directed wherever the rider chooses to go by means of such a small device. And so the will of the horse is submitted then to the prerogative of its rider by this bit. And this isn't done on accident. This is actually done through very thoughtful and intentional training that a trainer gives that horse through breaking that horse. It's not like they accidentally came upon this, but it's very intentional. And then James goes on to compare the tongue to the power of that of a ship's rudder. And in contrast to the size and mass of a sailing ship, the rudder is actually quite small. Uh, yet it determines the direction that the, the ship is going to travel. Uh, whenever my family would visit the beach or we'd go, we'd go to the river, it's, I still do this. I'm an adult and I don't care. I find the biggest stick I can find and throw it in the river. I'm like, let's see where this goes. And I like to throw it in. I don't know if anybody else is like me. I like to see what happens to that stick and as it takes off down the river. And there's no telling where that current can take it. It could just run right back into the shore. It might shoot off to the middle. It's really wherever the water is moving. That stick has no input on where it's going in the river. That stick has no say. The current will pull it along and it, it doesn't have any input in the situation. The element, it's, it's victim to the elements around it. However, a ship is not a victim to the wind that drives it or the tides that move beneath it. When it has a rudder. A ship can go where it intends to go when it has someone at the helm that is manipulating the rudder. Both of these examples then reveal something to us. The bit and the rudder must overcome contrary forces. There are forces that would work against it, but they overcome that. Though they are small, they overcome it to give purpose and direction. In the same way, the course of a person's life is dictated by the words that come out of our mouth. By the power of the tongue, it can determine the direction of your life. And the tongue carries with it an enormous power to direct the course of someone's life. Under control, our words can be such a tool. They can be so fantastically effective. Uh, but when uncontrolled, it beca can become such a liability, capable of immense destruction. You see... I've seen videos of, of huge ships that are without control, slamming into docks, slamming into other boats. And, and ships without control are really wrecking balls of destruction. 
In the same way, a horse without restraint is at best just unuseful. Proverbs 21, 23 tells it this way. It illustrates the importance of exercising control of our words. It says, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamities. You see, there are many circumstances in which silence is by far the best option. So many times I, would, I can look back and say, I'm glad I remained silent rather than I wish I would have remained silent. Someone once said that you are the master of the unspoken word, but the spoken word is the master of you. See, James goes on then. He gives two more images. We're going to look at two, three sets of images. The second set of images is, here's what he says. He says, in the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all these parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless, it is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. So this is, as I was studying, this is an interesting pivot by James. He actually changes course here, and, and it really seems to be contradicting himself. So here, he opens by telling us what we could do if we could control our tongues. He talks about uh, the bit in the horse's mouth. He talks about the rudder, control. But then he goes on to say, uh, then he says in verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. He says, so, so what's the deal? So, so how, do we, how do we navigate this? Uh, so in a little bit, we're going to reconcile this. We're going to reconcile what James is saying here to apply it to how it looks in our life. But here he's comparing these two new things. He talks about a spark, and he talks about poison. A spark is so small. It's so inconsequential by itself. I can sit at the grinding wheel in my garage, and sparks will fly everywhere, and I don't think about each individual spark. They're very small, but it only takes a tiny little spark to ignite a massive forest fire. A massive fire. Last year... We experienced a wildfire season in Oregon unlike anything I've, I've ever experienced or remembered in my lifetime. How many thousands and thousands of acres were lost? How many homes were lost? In 2020 alone, last year, over 4,000 Oregon homes were burned up and destroyed by wildfires. 4,000. And I think of all the manpower and resources that were poured into fighting these. Um, I remember we lived out in Thurston just seeing regularly helicopters flying overhead all summer long. The helicopters heading out, helicopters heading out. There were, there were caterpillars being taken out there, water trucks, boots on the ground, hundreds of men and women fighting the fire. And even still, especially at the beginning when the windstorm was going through, we were at the mercy of what the storm was going to do, what Mother Nature was going to do. There was no stopping it. There was no defining a certain line. We were really at, at, at the mercy of whatever fuels were available and whatever weather system was coming through. And the truth is, each of these fires, though, started very, very small. Whether they were started by natural means or kindled by malicious intent, whether it was a person or, or lightning, a small spark ignited damage beyond what we could imagine. There was a Smokey the Bear video uh, back in the day where he, you know, only you can prevent forest fires, um, where they actually do a forest fire in reverse. They show this massive, massive forest fire, the whole side of a hillside on fire, and it's getting smaller and smaller, and it gets down to the size of just a few acres and smaller and smaller still all the way down until eventually it gets down to the size of a match. 
And it's an illustration of how small it starts. In the same way with our words, it can just be a, a lightly spoken word, one careless word, one word of gossip, and it can change the world. For some of us, the more we talk, the more trouble we find ourselves getting into. I once heard a story about someone going into an interview being asked uh, by the interviewer, tell me a little bit about yourself. And the person being interviewed said, I'd rather not, I really need this job. Sometimes we speak too much. Sometimes the more we share, the more we get ourselves into trouble. Proverbs 10:19 says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Whew, that's straight to the point, huh? It's been said that it takes a baby two years to learn how to speak and 60 years to learn how to keep their mouth shut. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things is to know when just to remain silent. Because words carry weight. Words can do so much damage. One of our favorite family albums to listen to at Christmas is The Carpenters. We enjoy listening to The Carpenters. I didn't know much about them. It was actually especially tradition for my wife's family, and she told me all about Karen Carpenter and how great The Carpenters were. Tragically, Karen Carpenter passed away at a very young age, at the age of 32, due to a heart condition. And that heart condition was brought about by years of fighting an eating disorder. It didn't come out till later that her obsession with her weight was actually triggered by a single reviewer's comment. There was a Billboard magazine critic that referred to her as Richard's chubby sister in his article. And I imagine that there were other complexities that were involved and factors that attributed to Karen's struggles. But, but this comment unleashed a flurry of self-doubt within her that eventually led to this, this disease and death that she struggled with. This one phrase that was carelessly put in an article. One careless word, likewise. James also uses the image of poison. But the, the word actually defined is not poison. The word defined is actually venom, and it's the venom of an asp. An asp is a, a venomous viper that's in the Nile region. And so the readers would have known immediately what James was talking about when he said this poison. It's the venom that comes from this poisonous viper. And, and venom carries terrifying toxins. I, I love to mention that I listen to podcasts. I just so happened to listen to a podcast about venom the other day. It was fascinating. Uh, but through hemotoxins and through neurotoxins, it attacks both our circulatory system, that's our blood, but also our nervous system when a, when a snake bite occurs. And a snake bite kills you from the inside out. It's not like being attacked by a lion or something else like that. It's not the bite that kills you, but it's you're dying from the inside out. The the the. The hematoxins actually make it so your blood can't coagulate. But then it also breaks down your blood vessels so they start to open up. But there's nothing in your blood that can heal those. So you literally bleed out from the inside. Horrifying. Horrifying. I'm sure you've heard the saying that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. That is a bunch of bunk. That is, that is the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. Words can break our hearts. You see, bones can heal quickly with time. I once broke my humerus, and I thought I would never heal. But you know what? Six weeks later, I was back to having my arm back. But words, a broken spirit, that's not quickly remedied and healed. We can take someone's very soul with our words. And like the poison of a snake bite, words can destroy from the inside out. Words tear us apart from the inside out. 
The tongue has such a capacity to destroy reputations like a forest fire and to poison relationships like venom. So we need to be so careful with our words, just as a spark can be used for good, can't it? I love having uh, our fire pit in the backyard and going out to the fire pit and enjoying that with my family. A spark can be useful. It can bring us warmth. It can cook our food. It can bring us safety. But at the same time, it can be so incredibly damaging. Carelessly, it can burn down the world around us. And you may say, you know what? I've said some things, but I said I was sorry. I've done that many, many, many times. How many times can I tell you I've said I am I'm, I'm sorry? I'm sure many of us have said that, but that is a good thing to say. But you know what? Words can only be forgiven. They can't be forgotten. And sometimes we take that so lightly. You know what? I said I was sorry. Can't we just move on? But the words may be forgiven, but they can't be forgotten. Positive words are so easy to forget. Isn't that true? Someone can compliment you, and you can carry that for a while. But do you know the words that always resonate back in my mind? The words of criticism. Words where someone tore me down. Words where, where I felt inadequate. Those are the difficult ones to forget. And finally, James goes on to this last set here in verse 9. He says, sometimes it, he's referring to the tongue, sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this isn't right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. So James concludes with these two final images of a spring and of a tree. While I was researching, I didn't know much about salt springs. I thought salt water came pretty much from the ocean or the Dead Sea. I didn't know much about it. But actually, the thing that comes up when you look into salt water springs is Israel is one of the first things that pops up. And uh, I found several academic publications that were written um, noting concerns about the number of saline springs that there are in Israel. You see, saltwater springs, while they're useful, useful for like spa resorts, those are nice, but they're completely useless for irrigation, for crops. They're useless for drinking water. As a matter of fact, it would be deadly as drinking water. You would kill yourself slowly if you drank salt water. And so there's concerns in Israel about these springs that, that have increased salinity that are coming up. And so the readers would have known about this. They knew about the Dead Sea. They knew about these springs that would come up that weren't bringing fresh water. And so there were strings, stream, springs that were good fresh water, and there were springs that were salty water. The thing is, you never had one that was a little of both, or it depends if you come by on a Thursday. You wouldn't go to a spring with your canteen and put it in the spring, draw it out, take a drink, and spit it out. That's full of salt water. I hope it's sweet this time, and draw more water and drink it. You would know that this is a spring of salt water, right? I think this is probably where we get our term. That was, a, why are you being so salty? I don't know. <laughs> so, we wouldn't expect a different result. The spring is what it is. And then the final image James uses is that of fruit. He says, does a fig tree produce olives, or a grapevine produce figs? So these are the three most common agricultural products in the Judean hills that James would have been raised around. He, he knew all about these. We hear the story about Jesus cursing the fig tree. They, they, they were on the Mount of Olives. These were very known uh, agricultural items around the area. And I actually have here a fig tree. And here on my fig tree, you will see there is a fig right here. 
Now, you'd probably aren't surprised by me saying there's a pig there. You'd be more surprised if I said, and here is an olive right here. That, that would be an odd thing to, <laughs> to see on this picture. But as Pastor Kai brought us last week, the tree reveals the fruit. Your tongue, the words you speak, will reflect what is truly there, right? It's the real you. Sometimes we scratch our heads and we wonder, why did that statement come out of my mouth? Why am I always saying those words? Why did I go back to that? Why, why am I responding in this way? But the evidence, James says, is in the fruit. This is what James is talking about in verse 8. He says, no one can tame the tongue. See, this is it. It's going to reveal, this fruit reveals what you are inside. You can't tame your tongue to be something it's not. You can't change your tongue. You can't just like throw a rope around it and wrangle it and say, you're going to say the things that I wish you would say when the truth is the plant that's producing the fruit is totally different. You see, it's going to reveal what you are inside and and exactly that. In the same way, I can't change this fig into being an olive. I can't change this fig into being a grape. There's nothing I can do about it. There's, there's, there's no good intention. I can't uh, force it. You'll never be able to tame your tongue to do what you want it to do if the tree that, is, that, is, that the fruit is growing out of is what it is. It's like trying to do alchemy on fruit. It's like trying to change a fig into an olive. The only way you can change this fruit, the only way I can turn this fig into an olive is to change the tree into an olive tree. The only way this could be a grape is if this was a grapevine. No amount of alchemy, no amount of trying to wrangle it. That's why James says, who can tame the tongue? No one can just change it. No one can just, can just make it what they want it to be because it's going to reveal what's inside. It goes down to the source. And the only way not to produce salt water is for the source of a spring to be made new. The source of where it comes from to be made new. We are going to be made known by the words that we speak. People will know who we truly are by the words that we speak. We can proclaim something. We can say something. We can, we can profess that we are one thing. But people will know who we are by the words that come out of our mouth, by the conversations that we have. I recently watched a documentary on how the Unabomber was apprehended. It was fascinating. He went through extraordinary lengths to avoid detection. He, he ripped the skins off of batteries so he couldn't be traced. He would uh, make his own glue out of deer hooves. He lived in a shack in the middle of nowhere, Montana. He left no fingerprints. There was no DNA. How did they find him? They brought in linguists that read his manifestos and drew from it the different idioms and things that he said. And from the phrasing he used and, and, and tracking it down, they were actually able to narrow down their search down to the very city he was from based on his terminology. You will be known by the words that you say. You can say you are this and you can claim you are that, but your words will always give you away, won't they? The fruit will always reveal what the tree is. You can't tame the tongue to make it say what you want because it will always reveal what's inside. So this week, today, this Sunday, as we look at the words we've spoken, the things we've said, the statements we've made, what does it point back? 
What does it reveal about 